this morning, and I've um, called it Narcissistic Christianity. Yes, you heard that right, Narcissistic Christianity, okay? So this word narcissism is something that we hear quite often at the moment, it's a bit of a buzzword, and it is a narcissist is a person who has excessive interest in or admiration of themselves. A narcissist who thinks the world revolves around them. And so in a relationship, a narcissist would be very consumed with their needs, their wants, their desires, at the expense of their partners. They would expect a lot from them, but give little back to them. Often they end up blaming their partners for everything that goes wrong. It was something you did, you weren't good enough, you, weren't, you should have been there for me, that's why I did this thing. And it's all about them. Their entire relationship is based on their needs, their wants, their desires, what they can get out of the relationship, making sure that they are fulfilled and taken care of and loved and secured in whatever way that they can. But this morning, I want to say, are we possibly the narcissist in our relationship with God? How often is our relationship with God about what we can get out of it, what God can do for us? Our needs, our desires, our worries, our strives. How can God fix this situation for me? How can God come through for me? Do we expect a lot from Him and offer Him little in return? What is our communication like with God? When we talk to God, is it, God, you're amazing. God, I love you. God, I just want to praise you. Wow, God, the way you did that, you're amazing. God, I love you. Or are our prayers, God, I need this. God, I need you to come through for me in this way. God, I don't have enough money. God, I don't, I don't have any friends. God, I need you to do this for me. Now, those are not bad things. We, we need to ask God. We need to, 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 to communicate with God in that way. But which, how, how is it weighed? How are our prayers weighed? Do we blame God when things go wrong? God, this is, you didn't come through for me in this. God, why didn't you heal that person? Why did you let them die? God, why didn't you do this? Do we blame God when things don't go the way that we want them to? What are our motives when we come into the building? I love that first song we sang this morning where it says, like, I can't wait to get into God's house because I have this burning desire in me to praise God, to, to say, God, I'm free. I've found freedom. Like, I want to express that to you. Is that our motive for coming to church this morning? That we just race and we can't wait to get to church because we get to worship God. We get to tell Him how wonderful He is. We get to love Him. Or is it because... We were empty and we needed something from God this morning. Are you in danger of being a narcissistic Christian? I believe it's so easy for all of us to have these tendencies, for all of us to get stuck in a rut or to find ourselves in a place where we put an unrealistic um, emphasis or high sense on our own importance in our relationship with God and an inappropriately low sense of importance on God and who He is? Have we built our Christianity on what God can do for us or on who God is? That He is the creator, the giver of life, 
He is the king of all kings. He is kind. He is patient. He is loving. He is forgiving. He is gracious. He is powerful. He is caring. He is a king who gave up everything to have communion, to have relationship with us. Are you in danger of being a narcissistic Christian? And so with that question in mind, I want to look at Matthew 22 today. And we want to look at what Jesus, how Jesus describes what our Christianity should look like. What the most important thing is. What, if you do this one thing, you're winning in your Christianity. How do we counteract narcissism? This is how we do it. And it's Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So at that time, this was a question that was being asked all the time. The, the um, leaders of the law were, would debate this because there were 613 commandments in the Torah, so in the law, in the first five books of the Bible. There were also another like 1,500 um, commandments from the, the teachers of the law that they had put together to help you to, to, to maintain the law that God had given you. So now you've got these 2,000 things that you just got to get these things right, guys. Then you'll be a good Christian, okay? Just these 2,000 things, okay? That's a bit overwhelming, right? So there was this discussion, okay, but which ones are heavy? Which ones are light? Which ones should we be focusing on? Which ones are like, okay, if you slip up there, you're okay. You know, what, what is the most important? But now these experts in the law weren't coming to genuinely ask Jesus. They were coming to, trip, to trick him, to see, like, this was a hard question. What's he going to say? Because they're all important, right? So what's Jesus going to say? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So if you want to do the most important thing, the most important thing about being a Christian is that we love God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength and our heart, okay, and our soul. Then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So everything that's in those laws, all 2,000 of those commandments come down to these two things. Just love God. Love him with everything and, and, and turn that love towards people as well. Love people. But you'll see when, in Jesus' reply, there's double quotation marks there, which means he's quoting someone. And it's actually from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5. Jesus is quoting Moses. And this is the, the, what um, Jason preached on a couple of weeks ago, the Shema, the prayer that the, um, that the Orthodox Jews still pray today, every morning and every night. And it says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And that word love is from the Hebrew word ahava. And we see it all over the Bible, and it means to give affection and care to somebody. So it's, it describes a, a relationship between a husband and a wife, the relationship between a mother or a parent and their child, a brotherly love. It's also a love that a nation gives to a king when they give him his, their loyalty and their allegiance. They're giving them his, their love. It also describes God's love and his actions towards us. So God wants us to give him our affection 
and our care, to give it to Him. This command in Deuteronomy 6 comes in the middle of a story. So it's not standalone. It's in the middle of a story that Moses is telling. So the Israelites uh, have walked the desert for 40 years. God has done so much for them in those 40 years. And now they're coming to the side of the, the River Jordan, and they're actually about to enter the promised land. It's time for them to come and, and walk into the fulfillment of God's promises. But Moses gathers the people, and he wants to remind them of everything that God has done for them. So he, he goes through the whole story of he's rescued you from slavery. He's brought you. Remember when you're standing at the, the, the Red Sea and how God miraculously parted it for you and he saved you. And then while you were in the desert, when it was hot and you were sunburning, God brought a cloud and he covered us. And we didn't have to be hot while we were tra traipsing through the desert. And then at night, he brought fire to heat us so that we didn't freeze to death. And then remember when there was no food and God just rained food down from heaven, like miraculously, we just woke up and there was food for us to eat. We never went hungry. When we were thirsty, God brought water from a rock. This is your God. And he reminded them, guys, this is what God has done for you. He is amazing. He has brought you this far. And then in Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells the people that God has done this for them because of his ahava for them. So not because of what you've done, not because you were so great and you were so amazing, but God did this for you because of his love for you, because he had a feeling, a heart of love, which moved him towards action, and it moved him towards loving you, and he's done all of this for you. Then in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? What does he require of you? He says he requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all of your heart and your soul. Verse 20, he says, You must fear the Lord your God and worship him and cling to him. I love that image, like cling to him. Like a child clings to their parents, cling to him. Your oaths must be in him, his name alone. He alone is your God, the only one who is worthy of praise, of your praise, the one who has done these mighty miracles that you have seen with your own eyes. So Moses is saying, now that you've received, after receiving God's love, now you are to give love back to God. What does he require of you? You've seen these miracles. You've seen his love. You've experienced him. Now, Israel, it's time for you to give that love back to God. And church, this is our story too. God has saved us. He has saved us from, from death, from a life of sin. He's rescued us. He set us free. He's delivered us. We've seen his goodness and his kindness and his gentleness and his patience in our lives. And so this morning, I want to say, Legacy Church, what does the Lord require of you? To love Him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. That's what the Lord requires of you. You know, when, we ba when we're babies or when we have a baby, they require a lot from you. <laughs> and they don't give anything back. They just cry and poop and take every ounce of your energy from you, and they give you nothing in return. They don't love you back. They, they don't have the capacity to do that. 
But we give because we love them out of our love. And as they experience our love, as they see our caring and our nurturing, they get to a point where they're able to give love back. Imagine if a baby never got to, imagine if a child never got to that place where they just kept receiving, kept taking, and they never loved you back. Um, Kai came into my bedroom the other morning. We were just waking up, and he, it's the first thing in the morning, and he walks into the room, and he just comes, and he puts his hands on my cheek, and he says, I just love you so much, mommy. Come on, doesn't that warm your heart? You're like, okay, those years were, were worth it, <laughs> for even just for this one moment, because I am loved. He has experienced my love. He has experienced my nurture and my care, and now he's able to give love back to me. And I want to, I really want to encourage us, let's not get stuck in that baby phase in our relationship with God. Don't stay in that phase where it's like, okay, God, I need, I need this from you. You're doing this for me. Okay, God, yes, you're a good God. You're a good God. You're doing this for me. Let's move into that phase where we're actually able to give love back to God. Let's turn our thankfulness into praise and into love for God. So how do we do this? What does it look like? How do we love God with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our strength? Well, to to know what the the writers are actually meaning when they say love him in this way, like what does it mean? How, How do I love God with my heart? What does that look like? Well, then we've got to understand what they mean by the words that they use. What do they mean by heart? What do they mean by soul? And what do they mean when they say with all your strength? And so I want to look at firstly with all of our heart. That is the Hebrew word levav, or lev for short. It's often used in its shortened version. And in, so for this word heart, or levav, there's, there's actually quite a, a, a few meanings that are put into that one word. And I've got an image that'll come up onto the screen for heart. And so if we read in the scriptures, we can see that the writers have an idea of what, do we have that image? Is it behind me? No. Do we have that, Ryan, or not? Okay, there we go. So we, can, we see that they do have an idea of an organ in our body. There is the physical element of it. They know that there's something in our body that keeps us alive, and there's reference to it using that word, levav. But then what I found really interesting is that they don't have any reference to the brain, to us having a brain. There's no word in the historical... Hebrew um, for the word brain. And so they imagine that all human intellectual activity happened in the heart. So if we read the Bible, we'll see phrases like, you know in your heart. Your understanding is in your heart. Okay, Wisdom, according to Proverbs, dwells in our heart. Your heart is where, where you discern what is true and what is wrong where truth and error, that's in your heart. And so that second part is our thoughts. So when they refer to our hearts, they're actually referring to our thoughts, okay, our mind, how we think and how we discern life, how we make sense of the world. But then it's also, the heart is also referred to as where we feel our emotions. The phrase, a broken heart, actually comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. And um, Tammy made reference to Hannah when she was, so sad that she couldn't have a baby, it says that she felt pain in her heart. So our emotions, so they refer to our heart is where our emotions come from. But then there's another part of that um, picture, 
and it is also where our choices come from. So, but they, they're our choices that are motivated by our desires. Um, we've heard the, the phrase from the Bible before, the desires of our heart. So it's where, where our desires lie, and those desires form our actions. So when we feel something, we desire something in our heart, I, I want that, you know, I just feel this for like a McDonald's burger. We desire it, we make a choice to stop on the way home, okay? Our choices are motivated by our desires. And so when they talk about the heart or the levav in Scripture, it's a word picture for the, our inner center of our being. It's like the cockpit of our life. It's where all of our choices and our emotions and our feelings and, and our desires, where all of that comes from. So that's what they mean when they say love God with all of your heart. It means that we need to love God with all of our thinking, with our thoughts, with all of our feelings, with our emotions, giving Him our affection, but also with all of our desires, to love God with all of our desire and all of our, and to show that through our choices. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. So our, when we're loving us with our heart, it's we're loving him with everything that comes through us, from us. We need to love God with all of our heart. Secondly, we need to love God with all of our soul. Okay, soul, that word there is nefesh. It's a cool word. I like it, nefesh. Okay, and this is a tough one because when I say soul to you, you think of the part that goes to heaven, right? The, the ghost-like um, invisible part that when you die one day will leave. But interestingly, that is not how the Bible uses this word. It's never used in that context. It's actually used as a being. So when, you, when they refer to families, they could say you have five nefesh in your family, five beings, five life beings. It's also used to describe not just the life force, but also your body. There's reference to dead a dead nefesh in the Bible. So you can't have a dead soul, like it's, it's what's left there. So it's the body part that's left was also called the nefesh. So in the Bible, when they say with your soul, they're actually meaning your whole being, who you are. You are a living, breathing, physical being. And we need to love God with our whole being. So we need to devote all of our physical existence to God. Romans 12 verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So to love God with all of our soul is actually to live on an altar. To live on an altar. To give Him our very existence to love Him with our whole being, with who we are, with our body, with our life, with our being. And then thirdly, with all of our strength. This is the word me'od, and it doesn't actually mean physical strength. The most common use is actually very or much. And so if you look at this word throughout Scripture, and it's used over 300 times, it's always used as an adverb. So it's used to add emphasis to another word, to add um, in, to intensify other words. We see this in the story of creation. On the seventh day, God said, it is very good, or it is me'od good. And so to love God with all of our strength 
is to love God with all of our muchness. Like a better word would actually be strengthfully, to love God strengthfully. So to love God with all of our capacity, like everything, everything that we can, everything that we have, everything that we are, we are to love God with all of it, all of our energy, all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our money, all of our influence, with our careers. We're to love God with our privilege. We're to love God with our relationships, in our friendships, with our marriage, in our, with our children. We're to love God with all of our capacity. So we're to love God with our heart. That's our thoughts, our feelings, our desires. We're to love God with our soul, so our body and our being. We're to love God with all of our strength, with our capacity, with everything that we are and everything that we have. So it's to say to God, here, here is all of me. And the, way, the reason they, they say, they're, the fact that they're saying the different parts of us, with our heart, with our soul, with our um, strength, they're not trying to, trying to um, break up our bodies into different parts. They're actually creating a word picture to say, hey, you, there's nothing that's off limits to loving God. There's nothing that, that we shouldn't be using. It's everything. It's all of us. It's our whole being. Every, every part of you that makes you you, you can use that to love God. And all the Orthodox Jews prayed this Shema, this prayer every day, every morning and every night. They said, God, you are my God, and I need to love you with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength, all of who I am. And it was a reminder to them every morning, hey, refocus what is most important, love God. Okay, in the evening, refocus after a long day, after all this distraction, what is most important, I need to love God. So we need to make loving God our number one priority. If we want to counteract narcissism, if we want to make sure that we are living a life that is as pleasing to God, if we're, that, that our Christianity is what God wants it to be, then we need to make loving God our number one priority. And David in the Bible is somebody where we can see this so well. We see it in his Psalms, we read his Psalms, and there's, there's a desire, there's a deep desire for God. He knows God, he talks about who God is, and he, he expresses his love to God, and this drives him to, to have this thirst and this desire for more. Like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Okay, in Psalm 63, verse 1 to 4, this is also David, he says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. So, not just any God, he names him, God, you are my God. You are mine. I know you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. He's saying, I love you so much that I ache for you. Have you ever loved somebody so much that when they're away, like you can, you can feel the ache in your body, you miss them so much? Now imagine that with God. This is what David's describing. When I'm not with you, I long for you. I thirst for you. I desire you. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. He's saying, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you're like. I've seen you. You are my God. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. Come on, your unfailing life, love is better than life itself. So if you had to put life 
that he can keep his immortal body and stay alive, or you can have God's love. He would choose God's life. He would choose death, but to have God's life. So this is a Romeo and Juliet kind of love. Okay, it's where nothing matters more. It's, it's, it's more beautiful than life itself. How I praise you, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. This is someone who loves God with all of their heart, all of their soul, and all of their strength. And so this morning, I want to invite you to love God, to practice loving God the way that David does. And it might seem overwhelming. You think, okay, you've said, like, love him with everything. Love him with, with all that you have, everything. Like, how do I, where do I even start? How do I love him with my career? How do I love him with my passions? How do I love him with, like, where do I even start? And so I'm going to make it super simple for us today. And I want to invite you to take a, a few moments every day this week to simply love Jesus. So in your words, we're going to practice loving Jesus. Okay, some examples. It's just to say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you, Jesus. Jesus, I love you for your creation. Thank you for the mountains and the birds and the ocean. They're just so beautiful. God, you are beautiful. Your creation is beautiful. God, I love you for the simple things. I love you for coffee and breakfast. Thank you. Thank you for these things that I get to enjoy. God, I love you for your character. You're kind. You're patient. You're gentle. You're loving. You're faithful. You've delivered me. You've strengthened me. God, I love you. I love you. I love you. So we're going to take a moment to do that every day. And this practice of loving God draws us into union with Him. You see, when we focus our heart towards God in love, it actually turns our whole being towards God. So just by saying those words, just by taking your heart and putting that affection and that attention on God, you're actually turning your whole being to God. And I love how one writer puts it. He says, it opens the soul to Him like flowers opening in the sunshine. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, we get to open our hearts and our souls to God when we love Him intentionally. We're positioning ourselves to align with Him. Jesus in John 17, He prays, it's before He's going to go up to heaven, it's one of His, the last things He does, He prays for the disciples, but He includes all of us in that prayer. Do you know that Jesus prayed for you on that day? He said, I'm praying this to everyone that's going to come through this testimony of the disciples. And you know what he prayed? He prayed that you would experience the unity with him that he experiences with God. That was his prayer. That was one of his last prayers for you. He's saying, God, I want them to experience the closeness and the unity that I have with you, okay, the Trinity, that the Trinity has. He prayed that we would have that with him, that we would be that close. And so if you put your hands Together like this, this is a sign of intimacy, right? You're close. You're close together. This is intimacy. This is when you're close to somebody. But then if you take your fingers and you intertwine them, this is the union that God wants with us. Where our beings and God's beings are intertwined. Where we're not individuals anymore, but we're one. We're together. 
And so this is just that the simple practice of loving God every day can strengthen our union with God in this way. Because when we're in life, and it's busy, and there's disappointments, and there's failures, and there's moments where we don't feel like God's coming through for us, or life is just hard, or we've got this annoying boss, or not me, obviously, just metaphorically. Um, sorry, you got distracted. We can, that can erode our union with God. And so we, it's important that we take this time every day to come back and to, to point our hearts towards God, to give Him our love, to give Him our affection, to give Him, to give Him our hearts. And that opens up our hearts again to Him. It opens up our souls to Him so that He can then minister to us. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't know where to start with that, maybe you're thinking, I don't even know like, what words to use, you know? Where do I find the words? Then go to the Psalms. If you don't have words, then steal someone's words until those words become your own or they start sounding like they're genuine. Go and read the Psalms. The Psalms is full of love for God. And it's, they are asking God for things. So if you read the Psalms, you'll see they ask Him for things. They're bold. They play, pray bold prayers. They complain to God. They're honest with God. But they always turn that into praise. They always turn that into loving God. And so even our thanks to God can sometimes be selfish or self-centered, where it's like, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for providing this for me. And it's reestablishing in us, we're important. We're important. Yes, I must keep asking God to do this for me, to do that for me. But, and that's not, we have to thank God. Don't get me wrong. We have to thank God. But let those things that you're thanking God for turn into praise for who He is. So if God has set you free, that makes God powerful. So then it's, God, thank you that you set me free from this. Wow, you are so powerful. I love you because you are powerful. If God has met you in, a, in your deepest desire, that makes God kind and compassionate. And so we can say, thank you, God, for meeting me here. Thank you, God, for loving me in this way that you are kind. Change those words. Let those, that thankfulness change into praise. So God, thank you that you are kind. I love you because you are generous and compassionate towards me. If Jesus, the fact that Jesus loves us unconditionally makes him love. It makes him loving. It makes him a loving father. And so we can thank him for loving us, but let that change into praise where we're praising him because he is a loving God. And so I want to take, as we close, just a couple of moments. And I want you just to sit comfortably. You can close your eyes. And I want you just to take a moment to think about God. Who is he? What has he done for you? How has he come through for you? And then I want us to take a moment to love him for those things, to love him. So in your own words, use your own words just to communicate love to God, to show him your affection and your care.